I often wonder why more people aren't running to Jesus. Let's look at our culture and all that is happening. And I think about how good and great Jesus Christ is. I wonder sometimes, don't you? Why aren't more people running to Him to experience the life and peace and joy and fulfillment that only comes through Him? Well, the reason that people aren't running to Jesus, flocking to Jesus as it were, is because they don't understand the truth about God, about themselves, about eternity. Because if they understood the truth, they wouldn't walk, they would run to Jesus. And we'll see this in our text this morning, Acts chapter 17, as Paul finds himself in the midst of a diverse culture, many religions and worldviews, a diverse audience that are united by one thing. They don't understand the truth about life. And so Paul is going to share with them some truths so that they will see their need for Jesus. Acts chapter 17, we're going to begin reading in verse 22 as we continue our study through this wonderful New Testament book. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Wonderful attendance today. This was, you know, this was triple whammy Sunday. And by that I mean, uh, we had several things going on. One, uh, we have spring break uh, starting up, so folks are out of town on vacation. That's good. We want families to be able to get away and have that time away. We have two mission teams that are out. We have a team in Vancouver and a team in Sioux City, Iowa. They are uh, on the field right now, and so we knew they'd be gone as well. So uh, we were expecting that. And then, on top of all that, this is Time Change Sunday. The worst one, right? You, you spring... Some of you don't even know what time it is right now. You, you spring forward. And uh, based upon all that, I was thinking, that's triple whammy. I wonder if we'll have anybody there besides me or Travis. Which, by the way, if it was just me and Travis, I still would have preached because he needs it. All right? But, uh, but we're glad you're here. Marvelous attendance on this day. Isn't that awesome? Praise the Lord for that. Let's look in Acts chapter 17, verse 22. The Bible says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, as we sang earlier, that they should run to his arms and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him 
we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because... He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, I like this, by a man whom he has appointed. Who's that man, you say? And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This speaks, of course, of Jesus. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We praise you. We exalt you. You are the center of attention. And we say today what a privilege it is to be in the presence of the living God. To know that through Jesus Christ, we can experience your grace and mercy and power and nearness. And I pray that you would help us in these moments as we study your word. To understand, would you give us, Lord, illumination by the, by the working of your spirit. That we may see the truths of this text and give us the, the desire to adjust our lives according to what we learn. We don't want to just be hearers of the word, Lord. We want to be doers of the word. So would you move with power by your spirit. And in the midst of this this time of corporate gathering, may Jesus be exalted because it's all about him. We'll thank you and praise you for that grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We've been following Paul and his team around on what scholars refer to as the second missionary journey. Paul left Antioch in Syria. He traveled through uh, Asia into Macedonia. When he got to Macedonia, he went to a city named Philippi, then he went over to Thessalonica, then down to Berea. And some Jews who were losing their influence as people in the synagogue converted to Christianity began to stir up trouble for Paul. They didn't want him to preach his message anymore. And so the Thessalonian Jews ran him out of town. And when he went to Berea, they followed him to Berea and ran him out of town. And the believers believed that Paul's life was in danger. So they said to him, hey, Paul, you need to go to Athens. You know, let things die down a little bit. We want to get you to a safe place and leave your team behind. They can finish up the ministry here and they'll rejoin you in Athens after a number of days. So that's what happens. A group of people go with Paul to Athens to take him to that city just to wait for the rest of his team. But while he's there, just waiting, he begins to look around. And he is moved by what he sees. As a matter of fact, the Bible says his spirit is distressed within him as he sees the idol worship, the false religion taking place in that city. People giving their worship to idols. The worship that only is deserved by the one true God. And because the Spirit is provoked within him, he goes uh, to the synagogue to talk to the Jews, to the devout persons. He goes into the marketplace to just talk to the the folks that are there doing their shopping for the day, just plain, ordinary folks. He even encounters 
some of the intellectual elite, the, the philosophers, the Epicureans, and the Stoics. And as he shares this message, the good news about Jesus, the philosophers say, well, this sounds like a new message we haven't heard before. So let's take him to the Areopagus so that we can uh, let the, the other intellectuals in our city hear his message. So they can't take him to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was a, was a hill. It was named after uh, the Greek god Ares, the, the god of war. And the Areopagus means hill of Ares. And they took him to that hill, and there was a place there where people would come and share their views. They would share maybe a new religious thought they had, or they would share a new philosophical thought they had, or new worldview thought that they had. And, and the people would gather to hear folks out. In the first century, it was common for people to come to town and say, hey, I've got a message I want to share. So they thought, this is a new message. Paul's sharing this. Let's let Paul share with the intellectuals. And we'll, we'll uh, evaluate the message and, and see whether we're going to give it any credence or not. So that's what happens. They bring him to the Hill of Ares. They bring him to the Areopagus where they want him to share this message about Jesus Christ. You can imagine how intimidating this environment would have been. I mean, these folks were the, the, the cream of the crop in terms of um, academics and, and intellect and philosophy. These were, the, these were the, the, the brilliant, the most brilliant that the Greek culture had to offer. And they were going to listen to Paul share his gospel message. And what Paul does is he steps into the middle of this this Areopagus, it says he stood up in the midst of them and he begins to share with them some truths about life. Some truths that they needed to understand. If you look there in your notes, in the midst of competing philosophies and religions, Paul takes this opportunity to share the Christian worldview. I mean, there are a lot of different religions represented in Athens, a lot of different gods Worship in Athens, a lot of different philosophies and ideas in Athens. But he's going to share with them the truth about life so that they would ultimately see their need for Jesus. And listen to me, what Paul does here is a model for us. Because as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus who believe the word of God, we know the truth about life, don't we? We've got truth that we can share, that we can bring to bear on our very confused culture. And God wants us to represent that truth to a, a, a society that is filled with different views and religions and, and ideas. He wants us to share the truth about life so people will see their need for Christ. And so I want to just walk you through this, this sermon that Paul preaches and, and, and kind of point out as we go through it the truths about life that he shares. Now I want to group those truths into three different sets. The first set of truths are truths about God. Truths about God. And there are three truths about God that we see emerge from this sermon that Paul preaches. Here's the first one. Paul wants them to understand and wants us to understand that we can have certainty about God. We can have certainty about God. Now, that statement that I just made, would be highly disputed or is highly disputed in our culture today. That we can be certain about God. And and Paul wants them to understand this. Look what it says there in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, 
I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. The unknown God. Now, what's going on with that? I mean, Paul had spent some time in Athens. He, he saw all the altars and temples and different uh, false pagan gods that were worshipped in that city. But he also noticed there was an altar there inscribed to the unknown God. Why would the Athenians have an altar to the unknown God? Well, uh, most scholars believe that they were just trying to cover their bases. Okay, we, we, we have this temple for this God and this temple for this God, but just in case we missed God, let's set up a, an, an altar to the unknown God just to make sure we cover all of our bases. Years ago, I read a biography about Willie Mays. Love Willie Mays. Great baseball player. Fascinating story. And I just enjoyed that, that book so much. But in the book, it made a comment about his home. And it said he had a, a, a picture frame on his wall in his home. And in the frame were representations from different religions. There was Christianity represented there, and Buddhism, and Hinduism, and Judaism, and Islam. And they were all sort of all sort of represented in this picture frame. And what Willie Mays was trying to do was cover all of his bases to make sure that, hey, make sure I get at least get the right one by having them all on my wall. Uh, and that's what the Athenians were trying to do. They were trying to cover all of their bases. Uh, but here's what Paul says. You speak at this altar of an unknown God. I want you to know that you can know this God and have certainty about this God. Matter of fact, the word unknown there is the Greek word agnosto. It's where we get the word agnosticism from. An agnostic is a person that says, okay, there may be a God uh, out there, but we can't have any certainty about him. That was uh, certainly the belief of many of the Athenians. We can't have certainty about that God. And many people in our culture today are agnostic. They say, okay, maybe there's a God, maybe not, whatever. But, but if there's a God, we just can't know about him with certainty. Now, I'm talking about agnostics. I'm not talking about atheists. That's an entirely different sermon. Uh, I don't believe atheists deal with the realities of life at all. Over in uh, Psalm 14, it says, the, atheist says in his, uh, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so an atheist is called a fool by God's word. And by the way, isn't it interesting that atheists like to talk so much about God? Isn't that interesting? They want to tell you all the time how they don't believe in God. And they talk about God a, a whole lot. Matter of fact, I heard one guy uh, describe the atheist view like this. There is no God and I hate him. Right? See, the idea, the idea there is that the atheist's real problem is they don't want to bow their knee. That's the real problem. So there are people that are atheists that say there, there, is, there is no God. And the Bible says that person's a fool because God has given us ample evidence that there is a God. But there are others, probably more people in our culture that we'll encounter, that are agnostic. They're just kind of like, uh, can we be sure? Can we be certain? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure. But here's what Paul says. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, verse 23, this I proclaim to you. You say you can't know God with certainty. I want you to know I'm about to proclaim to you with certainty, with authority. There is a God and you can know who he is. So wait, wait, how in the world can we have certainty about God? Because God has chosen to speak. It's called the Bible. And he's drawn near to us with revelation, truth, 
with no mixture of error. So because he has spoken, because we have his word, we can know who God is, what he's like, what our issues are, and how we can come to know him in a personal way and give him the worship that he alone deserves. And Paul wants the Athenians to understand this, and our culture needs to understand this. There can be certainty in your heart, in your mind, concerning God. That's the first truth about God. There's a second truth here. Not only can we have certainty about God, but secondly, God is the creator and sustainer of all. He wants them to understand this. Look what it says there in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And look what it says down in verse uh, verse 27. I'm sorry, uh, verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul makes two claims here about the one true God. The first one is this. God has made the world and everything in it. God is the creator. And we know that story from Genesis chapter 1 that God spoke and the universe leapt into existence. How awesome is that? If you don't think that's awesome, try to speak something into existence. Go home and take out a plate from your, from your cabinet and put it on the table and say, Cheeseburger! And see if one appears. Right? We, we can't speak something from nothing. But God can. God did. He's the creator of everything. And not only is he the creator of everything, he sustains it all. It says there in verse 25, He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made it all and he holds it all together. He is the sustainer of everything. One theologian said, There is not a rogue molecule in the universe. God has them all in his hands. He's the one in control. He's the one holding it all together. And so Paul wants the Athenians to understand this. Here's who God is, the one true God. He made everything. He made you. And he's holding it all together. A statement about God being the creator and sustainer of all. But there's another truth about God that Paul shares. This is important. God wants the Athenians to understand God doesn't need us, we need him. Look what it says in verse 25, or back to verse 24, it says, God is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. You can't can't reduce God to a human temple. He's, He's everywhere, he's omnipresent. And he says there, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Now here is the folly of idolatry. In the first century and even today, people, they make things with their hands, a representation of God or whatever it is, an idol, and they have to pick that God up and carry that God to the place of worship. Now how silly is that? That you have to carry your God around? Aren't you glad that we serve a God that we don't carry? He carries us, right? And he's saying, that's the folly. Your idols need you. Your idols need you to even to come into existence, to be made, and then you got to help them out. And he's saying it's not so with the one true God. God doesn't need us. We need Him. And that's what He wants the Athenians to understand. And that's what we all need to understand. That's what our culture needs to understand. We need God. We are in desperate need of, of what only God can give. And so... He speaks here of the fact that 
that God is, is not a needy God. We need him. There's some bad theology out there. I've, I've heard people say things like this. You know, God created us because before creation, he was just kind of lonely. And, and he created humans so he would not be lonely anymore. And that's not a biblical statement. The Bible teaches that God is self-existent and self-sufficient. Before creation ever leapt into existence, God was there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, experiencing perfect communion and relationship in the context of the Godhead, in the context of the Trinity. God didn't create us because He needs us. He created us so that we would see our need for Him and give Him the glory that He alone deserves. And God of His grace opens up His arms to invite us into that perfect fellowship that the Trinity has enjoyed from eternity past. God doesn't need us. We need Him. And so Paul wants to set the record straight with some truths about God. I mean, there are all kinds of ideas in Athens and all kinds of ideas in our culture about God. As a matter of fact, just for... Just for information's sake, I googled God. Just typed in God in the search box. And, and it's amazing, just looking at a couple uh, pages, it's just amazing all the diverse views uh, that are out there about God. And, and one of the reasons that people don't run to Jesus is because they don't understand who God is. But there's a second set of truths here that that Paul wants to share with the Athenians. Not only does he speak about truths concerning God, he wants to share with them some truths concerning humanity. Some truths concerning humanity. The first one is this. He wants them to understand life is not random. Look what Paul says in verse 26. He made from one man... Who's the one man? Adam, right? Adam and Eve. So wait, do you believe in a literal Adam and Eve? Absolutely. Because the Bible tells me about Adam and Eve. And I believe the word of God. Amen? So I believe there's a literal Adam, a literal Eve. And all of humanity can be traced back to Adam and Eve. That's what the Bible teaches. And he says there, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. I love this. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Have you ever wondered why you were born where you were born? Have you ever wondered why you had the parents that you had or have? you ever wondered why you grew up where you grew up? you ever wondered what it would have been like if you were born in another country or another setting? you ever wondered those things? you ever wondered why right now you're living in the Mid-South? What's the deal? Listen to me. You are who you are. You've lived where you have lived. You live where you live now because that's what God wants for your life. God has ordained that. He's ordained that you be here in this room this morning. He's ordained where you live, where you were born, who your parents were. And guess what? He's ordained how long your life is. He knew before you were born when you would be born because he made you. God's the one that creates life in a mother's womb. And he knew when you would be conceived and when you would be born. And and not only does he know that, God knows when you will step from this life into eternity. The boundaries of your life are set in the heart of a sovereign God. He knows all of that. He has ordained all of that. He's put all of that into place. 
And the question is, why? Life's not random. So why is God doing this? Why did God, why did God see to it that I was born in Tallahassee, Florida? Why did he see to it that my parents were Buddy and Debbie Humphreys? Why have I been living in North Mississippi since 1998? Why? Why is God doing all of that? Because God has a specific purpose for my life and your life and everyone's life. And here it is, the next truth about humanity. Everyone has the opportunity to seek God because he is near. Look what he says in verse 27. It says, He's determined allotted peers the boundaries of their dwelling place that or so that they should seek God. No matter where you are, where, or who you are, where you're from, no matter how long you've lived, who your parents are, God desires for you to seek him to know Him, to give Him the worship that He alone deserves. And God has that same desire for the 7 billion plus people that live in our planet. He's ordained their habitations, their dwelling places, the length of time upon the earth. And His desire is that in the place where God has placed them, in the lifespan that God has given them, that they seek God and come to know Him and give Him the worship that only He deserves. That's why God has ordained everything to happen like it has. He wants us to seek Him. Now, it says there that, verse 27, they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. Here's what I want you to understand this morning. Say, wait, I'm not a follower of Christ. I don't don't have a relationship with God. Um, But you tell me God is near. How near is He? Look at the next verse. He's actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. How near is God? Listen to me. He just made your heart beat. This entire service, you haven't been thinking about your breathing. It's been involuntary, correct? But you've been breathing. Your brain's been thinking. That's how near God is. He's holding you together. That's pretty close, right? And his desire is that you seek him and come to know him and worship him. Everyone has the opportunity to seek God because he is near. But here's the problem. If God is so near and God desires a relationship with us, why are there so many people keeping God at a distance? Why are people, my original question, why are people not running to Jesus? What's the problem? Well, the problem's there in your notes. Our sin nature keeps us from responding to what God has revealed about himself. Our sin nature keeps us from responding to what God has revealed about himself. You see, we're all born with the sin nature. And it goes all the way back to the sin of Adam and Eve. And our sin nature corrupts us from the inside out. And causes us to run away from God instead of running to God. It puts up a barrier of impurity between us and God. And we've all got the same problem. And so that sin nature hinders our seeking after God. And that's what he's after in verse 27 when he says, He's established our habitation, our dwelling places, our boundaries, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him. That phrase, feel their way toward Him, means something like, that they should grope in the dark for him. And that's a good picture of humanity. People, because of their sin nature, because they have turned their heart and mind away from the evidence that God has given us, are groping in the dark, not 
finding the one true God. And that word perhaps there is interesting. This, this statement is in the optative mood, which is a grammatical statement, which means this. It, it carries with it an idea of doubt. God has placed us where he's placed us so that we would seek him and perhaps find him, but folks are just groping in the dark because of their sin nature. So our sin nature hinders us from finding the one true God. So wait, is that true? I mean, can you give me another verse to back that up? Well, yeah, turn over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I want to show you this. This is a very important passage. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 The Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here's the deal. God places us where he places us. He desires for us to seek him and find him. Yet we have a sin nature. And because of that sin nature, we suppress the truth that God has given us. Look what it says in the next verse. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Although they knew God, it says, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Feeling around in the dark, groping in the dark. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's what was happening in Athens, and that's what's happening in our culture today. Listen to me. God is near. He's making our hearts beat. Amen? And if you just walk outside and look up at the, at the stars and the, the sun and the moon and the planets and look around at the, at the Himalayas and the Grand Canyon and the oceans and, and all of the splendor and majesty of creation, you can see enough evidence just in that to know there is a God and He deserves your worship. But what happens is people are presented with that evidence. They say, I'm more interested in me than God. Instead of seeking the one true God, they seek their own desires and they're just groping in the dark. That's what Paul's saying to the folks in Athens. God has, has set you where he set you, he's placed you in Athens so that you would seek after him. But because of your sin nature, you're groping in the dark. So you say, wait, that's pretty bleak. <laughs> I mean... God is near and he's, he's shown his power through the created order and yet we're, we're, we're groping in the dark. We're, we're running away from him even, seeking ourselves instead of him. What's the answer? Do we have any hope? Well, I'm glad you asked because the next statement is so, so powerful. Listen to me. Our only hope is God's direct intervention in our lives. You see, that's why Jesus is so important. God is near, he's making our hearts beat. He desires that we worship him. And yet instead of seeking him in truth, we seek our own desires. We run from God. Our sin separates us from God. Our only hope is a savior. Because as we grope around in the dark, we will never find God left to ourselves. And so here's what God did. Instead of leaving us to ourselves, he came to us. 
That's why he sent his son to come to this earth and die for our sins and rise from the grave and draw us to God so that we could be saved and delivered from our sin nature and brought into a relationship with the one true God, giving him the worship that he alone deserves. You see, we desperately need a Savior. And the reason folks in Athens weren't running to Jesus, the reason folks in America aren't running to Jesus is because they don't understand the truth about themselves. They don't understand that they're just groping in the dark, chasing their own desires and plans instead of seeking the one true God who has left us ample evidence of who He is. And so we see here some truths about God that he shares in Athens. And and there are some truths in Acts 17 about humanity. But third, there are some truths about judgment. Truths about judgment. He he wants them to understand how critical this message is. He's not just sharing some philosophical meanderings. Paul wants them to understand that eternity is at stake. And he shares with them some truths about judgment. Here's the first one. People will be judged for their sin and rebellion against the one true God. Look what Paul says back in Acts 17, verse 29. Being then God's offspring. In other words, God made us. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. In other words, he's saying to the people in Athens, God is near, he's revealed himself through creation, he's the creator and sustainer of all, and you've reduced deity to your man-made idols. And you're chasing your own desires. You're you're suppressing the truth that God has given you. And you need to know there's a day of reckoning coming. That's what Paul's saying. A day of judgment is coming. God's overlooked. Overlooked rebellion. That means he didn't instantly judge man when they sinned. He gave them an opportunity to seek him during the life he gave them. But there's coming a time we'll have no more opportunity to seek him. There's coming a day of judgment. That's what he wants them to understand. We will be judged for our sin and rebellion against the one true God if our sin and rebellion hasn't been forgiven by the Savior. Number two, God has set the day. Look what it says in verse 31. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. So God has a day in mind. You say, wait, when is that day? I don't know. No one knows. But here's what we do know. We're one day closer to that day than we were yesterday. And you don't know when your heart will stop beating and you step into eternity. You don't have any assurance related to that. So you need to be ready for that day when you will stand before God. Because he set a day. And we are closer to that day than we were yesterday. And tomorrow we'll be even closer to that day if we make it to tomorrow. How many of you understand that tomorrow is not promised to any of us? A couple of weeks ago, I met with a lady and, uh, that's uh, affiliated with our church, and she's dying of cancer. She's on hospice, and, and it looks bleak. The, the doctors are not giving her much time at all, and I went to just pray with her and, and, and try to encourage her. And here's what I told her. I said, I know what the doctors are saying. 
Um, I know uh, what the, the nurses are saying. I'm grateful for them and, and their expertise. But ultimately, our lives are in God's hands. And I said, what you need to understand is, you may live longer than me. I may not make it to tomorrow. And that's true of us in this room. And See, I believe one of the reasons people don't run to Jesus is because they think they've got time to get ready for judgment. And they'll, they'll think about those things a little bit farther down the road when we're not, we're not promised any more road. Right? And so he wants them to understand that God has set the day. But then he wants them to understand this. God has appointed the judge. Look what he says in verse 31. He's fixed the day on which you will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. God the Father has appointed a, a man to oversee the judgment. Look what it says. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, that man, Jesus Christ, from the dead. So John 5 says it. This passage says that God has given all matters of, of final judgment into the hands of his son. Isn't that interesting? People in our culture today that mock Christ, people in our culture today that minimize Christ's followers, one day those folks, if they don't meet Jesus as Savior, one day they will stand before him as judge. And not only that, their knee will bow and their tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day's coming. And so he's saying, listen to me, you can, you can say what you want to say about Jesus here in this life, but you need to understand one day you will stand before Jesus, and he will have the final say about your eternal destination, where you spend eternity, heaven, in the presence of God, or hell, separated from God in conscious, eternal torment and wrath. Jesus will have the final say. Stop ignoring Christ. He's the Savior. And if you don't come to know Him as Savior, you will stand before Him and kneel before Him as judge. God has appointed a time and He's he's appointed the judge. And repentance is our only hope. Look what He says in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere. No matter where you live, no matter who your parents were, no matter what your background is, no matter what language you speak, no matter what color your skin is, all people everywhere are commanded to what? Repent. Repentance is our only hope. So wait, what is repentance? The, the, the Greek word is metanoia. It means a, a change of mind, which, which indicates a change of direction in your life. Repentance is two things. Number one, it's turning from our idolatry and rebellion. He's saying to the Athenians, you are worshiping false gods. You have suppressed the truth about the creator God, and you're going your own direction, seeking your own desires, and it's time for you to say, I am chasing pagan gods, false gods, and I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop rebelling against the one true God. I'm going to turn away from that false worship. Repentance is turning away from rebellion and idolatry. And repentance is turning to Jesus Christ. It means you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You trust 
that what he did for you is your only hope. Jesus came to this earth. He died on the cross for our sins. He took the punishment we deserve. And after he died on the cross, he was buried. And early on the third day, he rose from the grave. And because Jesus was, was, was crucified and, and buried and risen, you and I can have our sins washed away. You and I can experience eternal life beyond the grave. Amen? And so we put our trust in Jesus, what he did for us. We can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. God's direct intervention is our only hope, and He's intervened in our life by sending Jesus and showing us our need for a Savior. So idolatry is, is turning from sin and rebellion and, and, and wickedness and idolatry and saying, this way leads to destruction. I'm going to turn from this life. I'm going to turn to Christ and embrace Him as my Lord and Savior by faith. So there's no mention of faith in this passage. It just talks about repentance. Well, look what it says In verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him in what? Believe. That's faith. They believed in Christ. That's the the flip side of repentance. You turn from your sin and rebellion and idolatry. You turn to Christ and believe in him. You trust him alone as your Savior. And so we see in this this sermon, this, this sermon that Paul preaches in Athens, truths about life. Truths about God, truths about humanity, and and truths about judgment. And here's why Paul is preaching this message to the Athenians in, in the Areopagus. Because he desires that they be saved. And isn't that the point of all of this? Here's the point of the message today. When we understand the truth about God and ourselves, we will see that our only hope is Jesus. There are two quick ways this passage applies to us in this room. First of all, if you're here today and you feel like you're groping in the dark, perhaps you have a religious background, maybe you don't, but you know that you're far from God. And the Holy Spirit has gripped your heart today and shown you that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Jesus is your only hope. God desires for you to know Him in a personal way. And He's near. How near is He? He just made your heart beat. It's pretty close, isn't it? He's near. And He's spoken to you through the created order. He's spoken to you through His Word, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stop groping in the dark. And embrace the light of the world. His name is Jesus. And if you're a believer, here's the second application. If you're a believer this morning, you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. It is incumbent upon you and upon me to speak these truths in our culture. We're not doing anyone any favors by backing away from the truths of God's word. Because if people don't understand the truth about God and the truth about themselves, they they, they will never run to Jesus. So it is our job, with compassion, with grace, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it is our job to lift high these truths so that people will not walk, but run to the Savior.